recorder. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We'd like to be in your word. We enjoy being uh, moved in our understandings by your apostles. We'd ask that we would be as submissive as we should be. In your son's name, amen. I was in a conversation <clears throat> this week. I don't know what day. Um, I can't tell the difference between the days this week because Kenny Noli came over every day this week. And I, who knows what conversation it was in. But the verse in this passage came to mind and I applied it to some situation. And so I started thinking about the verse in the passage. It's a favorite verse of my father's in his teaching on the, um, uh, the nature of our ministry for the gospel uh, out of Acts 26. And uh, so I, it just, the phrasing sat on me and sat on me. And I said, what is it? How could we be benefited by it? Would it be worth talking about it to the saints? And it's the circumstance, in the circumstance, where St. Paul is in jail, uh, arrested by the Romans because of a riot that was caused in Jerusalem at the end of the book of Acts. And in that uh, situation, the Jews started to have plots to kill him, and so the Romans found out about it, and the Romans were kind of cool about these sort of things, and they liked to protect their citizens. Um, so they take him down to Caesarea. Uh, under the proconsul Felix. Felix uh, has a few conversations with Paul, gets retired out, the new proconsul Festus comes in, and in this situation he has the puppet king Agrippa II of Calchas uh, visiting, and they said, hey, why don't we have a little entertainment? Let's listen to this guy. Now, Rebecca was complaining to me, because I think that's what Jesus would have her do, about the size of the print on the Herod's graph. I want you to know I made that graph. I like that graph. It's clean, it's tidy. It lets you know who the Herods are. There are a lot of Herods. Generally all bad. Um, what you just need to know, it's just decoration, I know you're lacking a logo on the top of the sermon notes, but the, the Herod you're dealing with, Agrippa II, is down in the lower left-hand corner, Agrippa II of Calchas, okay? He is with, his, at this circumstance in Acts 26, he is with uh, Felix, not Felix, Festus, the proconsul, um, who replaced Felix. Felix, the guy who had just left town, was married to... Agrippa's sister, Drusilla. See that on the side there? Drusilla and Felix? Felix had a problem with Drusillas. He married, ended up being married to two Drusillas. Um, this one was the sister of Agrippa II. So the last proconsul, Agrippa's got this relationship with him. The other sister, Bernice, um, if you wanted to say with that line from uh, Green Mantle, she was mad and bad, but mostly bad. Um, that's Bernice. Um, she was a very evil woman. She worked hard for the Israelites, but she was having affairs all the time. She had an affair with the Roman Emperor Titus, 
uh, to the point that Titus had to kick her out of Rome. Rome was so Rome, at the height of the empire, was scandalized by this woman. She had that kind of morality. Let us just say, she's here at Acts 26 also. It's Agrippa and Bernice. Because Agrippa and Bernice have a relationship, we'll just say. They are brother and sister. Like I said, she was, she was bad. This gets to the end of it. And Agrippa said to Paul, verse 1, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I think myself fortunate that it is before you, O King Agrippa. I am to make my defense today against the, all the accusations of the Jews, because you are especially familiar with all customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You notice that the reason we know about Agrippa's immorality with his sister is because people talked about it, people knew about it, everybody knew about it. Here is St. Paul standing in front of a man who is manifestly wicked, personally. And he doesn't decide, I'm going to culture war with these guys. I'm bringing it up. He doesn't bring it up. He thanks him. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful I'm talking to you, because you know what's going on in this town. My own, my manner of life from my youth, this is Paul still talking, spent from the beginning among my own nation and at Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial for hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And that's kind of what I want you to focus in on. Paul was of a party that believed in resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Earlier in chapter 23, when he is first called up before the Sanhedrin, when he realizes that part of the group is Pharisee and part of the group is Sadducee, he says, I'm here on account of the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees then all took Paul's side, because the Sadducees, their opponents, it was like Republicans and Democrats, um, that's why the riot starts. Because Paul represents the resurrection as being central to what he's preaching, and the Pharisees like that. Earlier in Athens, I have this portion in, um, here on the side column, Acts 17. Being then, this is Paul talking, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Now I want, to, want you to be conscious, not in a creedal orthodox sense, 
Not, not because Christianity is always believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't matter how weird the resurrection from the dead is. If we're only talking about it in the creeds, because, well, who really thinks about the resurrection? Well, actually, people are very, you know, they don't believe it. The resurrection from the dead. Um, but, you know, they didn't then either. The Sadducees didn't in chapter 23. The, the Greeks went, what? When he brought up the resurrection of the dead? It says, some mocked, but others said, well, here you are. You're always going to have the declaration of the weirdness that is Christianity. I was talking to an agnostic the other day, and I said, you know, this is not about whether or not you hold weird views as an agnostic. I said, I'm a Christian, for heaven's sake. We think a dead Jew. We think a Jew crucified by Romans, out of countless Jews crucified by Romans, one of them is the living God. Just embrace the weird, okay? Yes, the Mormons have weird views. We have weird views. It's not the weird. It's strange, and, and that would be raised from the dead. And sometimes because we're trying to win the lost, we try not to bring up things that they will mock. But Paul did. Paul thought that some things had to be brought up. We end up having a Christianity that is indiscernible between American civil righteousness. It's like, you know, kind of, do you like George Washington and the flag and Fourth of July and being good to your neighbor? Well, you could be a Christian too. That's it. You know, that's the orthodoxy. If you believe neighborliness. No. We believe Jesus is the Christ. We believe he was raised from the dead. He died for our sins, raised to life eternal. And by belief in it, we are saved. You can't stop bringing that up. It has always been an offense to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, always. But not to some. Now Paul is testifying to some people who noticed this going on. I mean, he, that's why he says to Agrippa, I, I know that stuff's going on and you know the traditions going on around here and he gives his testimony I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth and did so in Jerusalem I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priest but when they were put to death I cast my vote against them and he put I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Okay, we have somebody who's on the inside track on all of this. He was in a world that reacted just as negatively towards the doctrines of what Jesus Christ is, and he was on the other side of it for much of his life. 
He's torturing people to get them to deny Jesus Christ. He is casting his vote against them in their death. Thus I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, we know the story. He gives his testimony a few times in Acts. In this situation, he adds a little quotation. It's either a quotation Paul is using or Jesus Christ was quoting or referring to Aeschylus' uh, play Prometheus Bound, for that's where the phrase, it hurts you to kick against the goads, comes from. Um, it's a quotation of a classical writer because that is a phrase, a cliche for trying to resist the gods. The gods are attempting something. Don't, res uh, don't kick against the pricks, was the... Now, a light shone on Paul, and suddenly his world is changed from being Mr. Civic uh, Judean righteousness, serving the synagogue, serving the, serving the high priests, and he ends up serving Jesus Christ by the end of his Damascus account. And this is where the Lord says to him what he's to do. And this is the portion out of which my father takes a kind of a, a light verse, if you will, and, and we're talking about this morning. Verse 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the commission of St. Paul. That's my father's sense of commission in his ministry of the gospel. And you've probably heard him talk on it various places of opening their eyes, turning them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I think, you know, I grew up under that. I think it's still, that's the case. I think that is what people go through. I, you're looking at it happening to Paul. A light, it was apparent to him, his eyes were open, rapidly closed, as a matter of fact, after that. There's such a almost a symbolic thing, Ananias comes to heal his eyes and the scales fall from them. Um, the, the, the metaphor is strong in this one. But so much what we don't recognize is that the declaration of what it is to be a Christian, with no apology, no adjustment, no adjusting it to the sciency mind of the day, or the culturally relevant parts of today that you are always speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ maker of heaven and earth who was a Jew 
in the first century and was killed by the Romans and was raised from the dead. Is coming again in glory. And the more you can almost make it sound like this is a story, not that the church tells, but that you tell. That's the danger of creeds. They may get it all right and turn it into something wrong because it doesn't sound like the person standing in front of the non-believer believes it. Or is a little embarrassed by it. To talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talking about once you... Are you trying to tell me that some dead Jew in the first century is God Almighty? Why, yes, I am. I mean, we, we could compare weirdness in our views. They're trying to tell me there is no God. I mean, that's really, really dumb. Once you get into the, once you get into the light and the darkness issues... Because this is a matter of, remember, opening their eyes, turning them from darkness to light, and then from the power of Satan to God. The declaration, the open statement, the open statement of uh, what it is we believe, it's not going to open everyone's eyes. It didn't open everyone's eyes in Athens. Many, they mocked. Half the crowd in the Sanhedrin who were trained in the Bible, they will rush upon you and beat you up. But some people will listen. Some people will say, the, the, the scales will fall from their eyes, they will see something. Now, scales falling from your eyes is not enough. It just prepares you to see the light. Suddenly people are interested in pursuing the question, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. How do I know what's how do I know what's going on without having eyes open? Christ, the philosophy, the cosmos, looking at the things above the the the, the, the the greatness, you begin to realize certain things that some people find God in mathematics. Some people find God in physics, some people find God in, in art, some people find God in all sorts of places because the light is all around us. Our eyes have to be opened and sometimes it's you being willing to stand up straight and say, yeah, you've been over to my house, you had dinner with me and my family, you kind of like us and you think we're actually great people and really a peaceful home and yes, I believe a dead Jew 2,000 years ago is God Almighty. Because suddenly it's not just a weird person in a cult believing that a dead Jew 2,000 years ago is God Almighty. But really nice people who have their stuff together believe that Jesus is the Christ and was raised from the dead. That opens people's eyes. Everything, um, I've been talking to Kenny Noli and, and Greg and some others about you know, mysticism and the like and how sight is the sort of the the axis, everything from art through philosophy into mysticism, it's your perception. And most of humanity has their eyes shut. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know how the world actually works. Couldn't argue the way out of a wet sack. They're just, they're just paying their taxes and going to work and taking the weekends as they come. People who do not, as you've heard me say, taste their own food. 
their perceptions are, are not, I don't really care, just the next day, instinct, animalism. Is it going well, is it going badly? I know a number of non-believers like this who are not railing against gods, I don't believe in the God, or I don't like Christianity. No, they just don't care. And I'm not here to make them care. You're here to announce that which opens eyes, and then you want to have them surrounded with open eyes, and they're curious about this. You want to surround them with everything from your example of life and every comment you make makes sense. That's what light will be. Darkness is the chaos. Darkness is non-illuminating. You have to find that which is illuminating. It's not always just a reasonable argument or something like that, or philosophy. It can be the truth in science or the truth in various other things, but you're, you're examining that which is illuminated. It's, it's establishing what your eyes are open to see. Now the last thing is turn them for the power of Satan to God. Now that's a little bit it's name and names, for one. Satan. Have you ever... I mean, Christians like Satan. You know, I mean, it's part of their dualism and part of their, their moral equivalence. You know, the bad God, the good God, they fight it out all through history, and the God, the good God wins. Yeah, you're just Zoroastrians at that point. But whatever you think of Satan, and Satan is out there, you know, you, you can see Satan tempting the Christ right in the garden. Not in the garden, in the wilderness. Have you noticed there really isn't really any church of Satan? I mean, really, other than people in California who are LARPing about, you know, Anton Zanzor LeVay, high priest of Satan. He's just trying to get chicks. You know, there's like probably 12 members. Nobody really, I mean, Satan, you think, boy, the power of Satan to the power of God. Where's the power of Satan? I'm not saying this to denigrate the power of Satan. The power of Satan is pretty, I, that's why I like Lewis's screw tape letters. Just, it lets you know what the power of Satan is. You know what the power of Satan is? You. Because he's not asking you to serve him. He's asking you to serve you. That's the power. Of, you, you, all, that's where all sin is. What, what does he tempt the Christ with? His, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these nations. We are tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. We step under the power of Satan, willing to do what he wants in this world, just in the process of serving what we want in this world. He knows that we're complete suckers for hanging our own, you know, urges in front of us. I want to decide to do what I want to do. Everything you struggle with, everything you take drugs to cover up, everything you're trying to get out from under the guilt of, it's because you served yourself. And when it says from the power of Satan to the power of God, God's not the same way. God would like you to obey him. 
He would like to make you into a person who naturally thinks like him. The fruit of the spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Because the end result is going someplace. That we receive forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified. This is <laughs> what we're about. This is the, uh, um, the message that Christianity is about. Christianity is not a growing, loose view of the American Constitution that somehow the, the ever-evolving, what's the phrase in law, when they got the event of the Roe Wade, it was the penumbra of the emanations. Um, a, a, we have ways of growing with the state of the age and, and speak about things that are always changing. Your religion, folks, is not. That which the apostles believed. You are, if you're a Christian, you believe in the same Christ and God and Spirit and Father and path that St. Paul believed in the first century. There's a lot of people who say other things, either more conservative or more faithful things and have become all churchy and there are some people who have gone all liberal but Jesus Christ, him crucified him raised from the dead, him ascended into glory this is what our forgiveness of sins and our sanctification of our lives is rooted in, for this reason the Jews seized me, oh excuse me I skipped over a verse there, wherefore O King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision I would hope you could take that verse out and put it on your fridge. But you can say, oh, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I had my eyes opened, light fell on me, and I turned for the power of Satan, which was serving myself, instead of serving God, to serving God. Did you? I mean, did you? there's lots of different ways we can pretend to become Christians this is the way you become a Christian is you see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ you fall on your knees you believe it you declare it you confess it with your lips but declared first to those at Damascus then at Jerusalem and throughout all the country of Judea and also to the Gentiles the message that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance. This is, you might say, synonymous phrasings of the track we're on, the track Paul was on, the track he was commissioned to be on, and the track he preached, both to Jew and Gentile. Repentance, that means well after I got my eyes open, well after I had light poured out to me. This is sort of a breaking apart of the power of Satan from the, from the power of God. You repent. That means you consciously turn away from it. You're not just trying to hope that somehow it's going to... The thrill of being in this happening church is going to fix your life. You say, Evan, it's not a happening church. Okay, all right. But it's not going to do it either way. You're going to have to look at your life and go, the power of Satan in me is strong. 
it can always count on my urges to entice me to sin because I will serve myself and I need to repent of that I, I, to not attend to you that's the problem with the world the whole world is attending to themselves and we stop that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves we need to repent turn to God and perform deeds worthy that we, we stand before God that that repentance is going to have a life that matches that repentance God wants what he's trying to do you've heard me say it over the last few weeks repair his good creation you the believers are supposed to be the objects of that repair you walk around loving your wife and your children you walk around loving your enemies because you've repented from your power of Satan lifestyle and you have turned towards God for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me it doesn't go well, by the way. Um, it's not only weird, you don't just suffer the slings and arrows of people's maybe comments online that, oh, you're so dumb, you still believe in Jesus, you still believe in Christianity. Some people are going to punch you in the face. Some people are so upset, so upset, they will kill you. They killed Jesus, for heaven's sake. You, you, that was a little bit too pointed wasn't it they killed Jesus for heaven's sake Jesus himself says when they hate you know that they hated me before they hated you you're not greater than your master you're getting you're going to get the treatment now if you're lucky and you live in a lawful society and even the secular system is going to punish those who assault others when they do punch you in the face, the guy who did it might go to prison. But you might get, still get punched in the face. And not as a metaphor for an unkind word on the internet. Here they were trying to kill him. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Because once you step into the realm of the light, once everybody's eyes are open in their room, and Bernice and Agrippa and Festus are all sitting there going, oh my gosh. The lights are on. You get to shine that flashlight. You're standing there in chains. Shine that flashlight at all sorts of things. It all starts to make sense that the Christ must suffer. And that be, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Okay, it's getting too much for the audience at this point. And as he, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are mad. Your great learning is turning you mad. Because that you've got you to shut the light off. This is getting too well illuminated. But Paul said, I'm not mad, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking the sober truth. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak freely. The king that is living with his sister. But has been around enough. That the light Paul you saw. He says. Festus. Some people in the room know the light when they see it. Agrippa knows the light. 
This was not. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice because it's not done in a corner. This is not a hidden cult based on some sort of Charlie Manson helter-skelter theory. It was Jesus Christ wandering Palestine teaching to thousands and they still killed him. And these are the people who killed him. The people who killed him are around. They're trying to get Paul. None of this was done in a corner. And you should be able as a Christian to refer to anything around you because you've declared Jesus Christ in the weirdness of what it is we believe and then you say, look at my family. Look at how people are that are sinners. Look at the nature of the world. Look at everything because the lights on declare the glory of God. Even the judgment of the wicked, the maintenance of the righteous. You can speak freely with the lights on. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Man, again, this guy, he's like having a gay guy up there on these. And you're, and you're going, and Paul's going for his salvation. He's not, care, he's not saying, you know, I really disapprove of your relationship. Well, everyone disapproved of his relationship. No one should date Bernice, especially not her brother. But Paul's wanting to know whether your eyes are open, whether the lights are on, and whether you're ready to be called to turn from Satan to God. And he's got, and Agrippa sees it coming. He says, Paul, he says to Paul, in a short time you think to make me a Christian. This Close call for Agrippa. He knows what's going on. Festus knows what's going on. Paul knows what's going on. We're taking a position that really not many people believed in antiquity any more than they believe it now. But he opened their eyes with it. And it testified how his eyes were opened with it. And how in that illumination he was going to say, think of the prophets, think of the Christ, Think of what's supposed to happen. Christ it happened in. St. Um, uh, Lewis, in his, in his biography, autobiography, says this at one point. He'd been studying all sorts of things. And some atheist friend of his, who never became a Christian, said something like, that's a rum go. It seems like it actually happened one time. Just cut the legs out from C.S. Lewis. He says, they were talking about all these crucified, suffering saviors of various religions. And this atheist said, it seems like it actually happened one time. And then proceeded not to believe. But Lewis couldn't let it go. Because it actually happened. The Christ died. And the Christ was raised. And as soon as the person is willing to stand on that by faith, and to say, no, this is the truth... I'm not arguing it to you, I'm telling it to you, and let's talk about the illumination of life. It starts to come home to everybody that the people who believe this thing are the ones illuminated in life, who have light rather than darkness, because they have stepped past Satan to God as a decision. In a short time, you think to make me a Christian. Paul said, whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The private conversation, which we have a record of somehow, because remember there's a group of people in the court not listed. We know that one of the elders in Antioch later is part of Herod's household. What's his name? I forget it. One of the elders of the church. Some of the people here, not Agrippa, may have believed Whatever the case, they're talking, we have the record of them talking about it, going, man, there's nothing wrong with this guy. This guy has the lights on. They might, people might believe you have the lights on. The decision to turn from Satan to God, that's the tough one. Because really, we're just trying to get their attention because so few people are going to find God. So few people are going to look for God. Your operation in it is to open eyes and darkness to light but you don't back away that the decision has to be are you going to serve yourself or are you going to be on your knees declaring your service to God will you repent of you and repent towards God that's, that's, that's rough because you know you love yourself more than anybody you know as, as charming as you all are I, I don't doubt that you are lovely but not lovely enough to worship And what you want, I want you to sort of think about, and here we are at the left, bottom of the left-hand side. We know what Christianity is based on. We know that we should stand forward with it, with all of the weird, because we're about opening eyes, we're about defining the world in light of this act, because if this is the God that we worship. That's what you need to ask yourself. Have you seen things? Have you seen these things? Do you know what it's like to have your eyes opened? Do you understand what you're seeing? If it's not light, if it's, if it's not understood, it's not light. If it doesn't illuminate, it doesn't shine light on and show you where things are in your world, it's not light. There's no difference between light and darkness if it doesn't do that. And have you quit serving yourself? An awful lot of what Christians struggle with is because they still serve themselves. And with a memorable verse, it hurts you to kick against the goads. You could say, my favorite, favorite verse is by Aeschylus in Prometheus Bound, where he suggests that we shouldn't resist the gods. It hurts us to kick against the goads. It does. God is coming into this world in the Christ and in the apostles and in ministries down through the ages, pursuing the men that can see, making men see, exposing them to the light, and calling on them to repent. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent. It hurts to kick. You could stop, try to stop God from doing it, but he's not going to stop doing it. And the Christians... 
we trust will be part of him doing it. Identify it in yourself, rejoice that it has happened in you, and be ready to open people's eyes with a clear statement of what it is to be a Christian. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Be with us as we minister your grace to the non-believers. Be with us as we learn of your grace in ourselves. In your son's name, amen.